If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. Our reading is uh, from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to verse 22. And uh, as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to the churches. You know what each of our situations is, so grant us understanding of how we are to live out the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we arrive now at the last of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 to 3. And as we've said many times before, these letters were originally written to the first century church. But they are also for the church in all times and all places. The aim of today's message is to demonstrate that Christ loves his church by calling us back into fellowship, even when we stray from him. Christ loves his church by calling us back into fellowship, even when we stray from him. And this was the situation with the pastor and the church at Laodicea. Remember that each of these messages is addressed to the angel of the church or uh, the messenger in this really is a reference to the pastor, and, but it's also, you know, to the whole church. And as we'll see of, you know, all the seven churches, Laodicea was perhaps the most comfortable and well-off. There's not really any mention of them facing persecution. And yet they were also the most spiritually destitute. Uh, Laodicea is one of only two churches 
that receives no commendation from Jesus. And yet, even though Jesus has some hard words to say to this church, we see that love is still at the center of his message. So let's take a closer look at what Jesus says. And like all the letters, this one begins with a description of Jesus. It's a reminder of who Jesus is. And he is the work, the amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of God's creation. Now, what does all this mean? Well, first, it says that Jesus is the amen. That's kind of strange because usually we think of, you know, amen as just something we say after we pray. Or sometimes during when we pray. Well, um, the word amen just means pretty literally just yes, you know, let it be so. Um, it's, you might call it a confirmatory oath. And this is why we say amen at the end of all of our prayers. It's something we've been trying to, I've been trying to teach my own kids. Um, and I say, John, you know, what do you say after we pray? And he's supposed to say amen. And then what does amen mean? Well, amen means yes. So he's supposed to say yes. He doesn't always say it, but um, he tries. Okay, so Jesus is the amen. In 2 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 20, or, uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 20, uh, Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we, are, we utter our amen to the glory of God. Okay, so to say that Jesus is the amen is to say that Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. All of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. And the scriptures are full of promises that God makes to his people. Well, how can we be sure of them? How can we know that they are for us? Well, the answer is not to look to ourselves or to our own performance, but to look to Jesus. He is the Amen. A second, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Often we think of ourselves as being witnesses to Christ, and that's true. But we must remember that we are witnesses only because Jesus himself was the first witness. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he told him that he came to bear witness to the truth. That's John 18, 37. And Jesus did this by being faithful to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. This is the pattern that we are called to follow. We are called to be like Jesus as we witness to him. We witness in the same way that Jesus witnessed. And third, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. And of course, Jesus is the beginning in the sense that he is the one through whom God created all things. As the Gospel of John says, all things were made through Christ. So he's the beginning in that sense. Uh, but Jesus is not just you know, the origin point of creation, um, but we, he's also the beginning in the sense that he is the organizing principle. And we get the same sort of idea in Colossians 1.7 uh, when Paul says that in Christ all things hold together. Okay, all things were created through Christ and also for Christ. And in Colossians, this is 
especially connected to the fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Okay, so Jesus is the beginning of creation, and he is also the beginning of the new creation. Well, apparently the Laodiceans had forgotten these three things about Jesus. You see, rather than depending on Christ as the center, rather than depending on him as the one who holds everything together as their firm foundation, rather than confessing Jesus as the Amen and faithfully witnessing to him, the Laodiceans felt very self-sufficient. Indeed, it seemed that they didn't really have any need for Christ. And we see this in the following verses. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you are either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that's a really shocking image of Jesus spitting something out of his mouth. I mean, you can just imagine how you know, insulting it would be if you, know, you cooked up a meal or mixed up a drink and gave it to someone. They spit it right back out into your face. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's possible that there's some historical background here. Colossae was a neighboring city to Laodicea. And Colossae had cool, refreshing mountain water. And another nearby city uh, was known for its healing hot springs. Laodicea apparently had neither of those. Laodicea had lukewarm water, which uh, was not really good for anything. It was neither refreshing nor healing. Now, whether or not this is in the background, um, the point is this. The works of the Laodiceans are distasteful to Jesus. Remember, the scriptures say that our lives are a living sacrifice. Uh, We should offer up a life that is aromatic and pleasing to God. But when Jesus tastes what the Laodiceans have to offer... He's ready to spit them out. Now what's so distasteful, what's so um, unsavory about the Laodicean church? Look at verse 17. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Notice what Jesus says here. He does not say, I want to spit you out because you are rich and prosperous. No, he says, I want to spit you out because you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. In other words, what is so distasteful about the Laodiceans is their attitude of pride and self-sufficiency. You know, a person who is always thinking about what I have accomplished, or what I will achieve, or what I have, or what I will do with my life. Ultimately, this is a person that doesn't have much room in his heart for Christ. He doesn't see any need for Christ. And that's what the Laodiceans were saying. I have it all. I need nothing. Apparently, not even Jesus. And that's what it means to be lukewarm. Now, anyone can have this kind of attitude. 
whether you are poor or rich, whether you have much or have little. Nevertheless, it is a greater temptation for those who have much. Wealth is not inherently evil, and neither is prosperity bad. But when you begin to feel that you have more than enough, it becomes easier to think that Christ is not enough. And that's why the Old Testament is full of warnings to Israel. Uh, for example, listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 28. He says, when you come into the promised land and, and when you begin to enjoy the blessings that God has given you, take care, lest you forget that it was God who saved you out of Egypt and brought you to this land. You know, some of us have been blessed by God materially and financially. Some of us have the great spiritual benefit of growing up in Christian homes. All of us have the blessing of living in the most free and prosperous country in the world. We should praise God for all of that. But let us remember that the root of all these blessings is Christ. Let us remember that each generation is called to be faithful, to put their trust in Christ, and to teach their children and children's children to trust in Christ as well. And sadly, it seems that more and more we are trending towards this Laodicean attitude. Now, our culture no longer sees the need for Christ. Like Laodicea, many of us Americans think that we can have prosperity, we can have security, we can have strength without acknowledging Christ as our King. Well, the worst part of it is that the Laodiceans don't even recognize their spiritual poverty. They're blind to it, as Jesus says. And things seem so bad that we might wonder, well, is Jesus addressing unbelievers or believers? You know, maybe the problem is that these Laodiceans, they, they weren't even Christians in the first place. Now, these words about being spiritually blind uh, would certainly fit false believers. And what I mean is that it is possible to think that you are a Christian without actually being a Christian. You know, this is the person who professes some you know, vague belief in God, maybe even comes to church once in a while, but who has no interest in serving and worshiping Christ. He has no real understanding of sin and salvation, and no real desire to hear God's word and live by it. Okay, so maybe you've always called yourself a Christian, but you've never really given it serious thought. Jesus might be speaking to you. At the same time, I think these words are also spoken to genuine believers. See, there probably were genuine believers at Laodicea who were nevertheless caught up in the self-sufficiency and wealth of their surroundings. And that is, even though they may have trusted in Christ for salvation, they've fallen into worldly lifestyles and worldly ways of thinking. And the same thing can happen to us when we believe in Christ for salvation without bringing His Lordship into every area of our lives. 
That is, you know, maybe we've prayed the sinner's prayer. Maybe we can even explain the gospel. But then when it comes to, you know, so-called non-spiritual things in life, maybe like, you know, educating our kids, or maybe when it comes to politics or entertainment, we simply leave Jesus out of it. You know, maybe we just never thought about it. Or maybe we don't want to be seen as those you know, really crazy Christians. We don't want to be like them. But in effect, when we do that, what we are saying is that when it comes to these other things in life, I don't really need Jesus. Right? In theory, we acknowledge our need for Christ in salvation. But then in practice, in all these other areas, we are denying our need for him by leaving him out of how we live and think. And if Christ is not there, then that vacuum will eventually be filled by the world. And that's how Christians who know the gospel in their heads can end up thinking and living in a way that the surrounding culture does. That's not much different than what was happening at Laodicea. So let us not think, well, I've trusted in Jesus for salvation. I know the gospel. Therefore, becoming lukewarm can never happen to me. Certainly, Jesus' warning is for false believers who are in the church. But it is also for genuine believers who have either forgotten or who are otherwise weary in living out the Christian life. Well, what's to be done when a church is spiritually naked but can't even see it? If we're like the later Sians, um, what can we do about it? And so far, this letter seems full of bad news. But that's not where it ends. Think about what Jesus does in the Gospels. What does Jesus do for the hungry? Well, he feeds them. What does Jesus do for the blind? Well, he opens their eyes. If he will do this for those who are physically empty and poor, how much more will he do this for those who are spiritually empty and poor? And that's exactly what we see in the rest of the passage. Christ is the answer to what the Laodiceans need. In verse 18, we see Jesus giving these three things to address their spiritual poverty. And these three images symbolize what the Laodiceans were missing by thinking that they already had everything. These three images show us what it looks like to live in genuine, close fellowship with Jesus. Okay, so first, in contrast to their material wealth, Jesus gives gold that is refined by fire. Of course, this is not, you know, material gold. The Laodiceans apparently already have plenty of that. In the Bible, the, the weight and the brilliance of gold is a symbol of, of value, of glory, and, and splendor. Now, this is why uh, in the temple, the entire uh, inside of the temple was overlaid with gold. And even now, gold is still regarded as a store of value. But Jesus is reminding the church, if you want what is truly valuable, if you want what is glorious and everlasting and sure, 
Do you want treasure that won't rust, that can't be stolen or destroyed? In these days, if you want something that's truly inflation-proof, then Jesus says, come to me. And I think this image of refined gold is about seeing the value of Jesus himself. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so let us ask ourselves, do we value Christ himself? Or do we value Christ only for the sake of something else that we want? Is Christ our treasure? Or are we only laying up for ourselves treasures on earth? Second, Jesus gives white garments so that they can clothe themselves in the shame of their nakedness. Um, the Laodiceans were spiritually naked. They needed to be clothed. Now what does this remind us of? Well, it reminds us of Adam and Eve. Remember in Genesis, after they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness. And they tried to cover it up with fig leaves. But that was insufficient. What they needed was for God to provide them with garments of skin. All right, so you remember that when God comes and confronts Adam and Eve, he sees that they've clothed themselves in these fig leaves. And instead, what does God do? Well, it's, it's not said, but it's implied that God kills an animal. He sacrifices an animal and gives them those animal skins to clothe themselves. This points to the fact that we cannot clothe ourselves with our own self-righteousness. What we need is a righteousness that comes from the outside. A righteousness that comes from Christ. What we need is a perfect sacrifice who dies for us and who covers our unrighteousness. So we are not saved by our works, but by Christ's work. But remember, though we are not saved by our works, yet Ephesians 2 says that we are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We are created for good works. Likewise, uh, Revelation 19.8 says that uh, white linen garments signify the righteous deeds of the saints. And in one of the previous messages to the church, to, in the message to Sardis, Jesus says that despite the problems in the church, there were still a few who walked with him in white. Okay, so from all of this, we can gather that um, this image of being clothed with white garments uh, suggests that when we are in fellowship with Jesus, we bear the fruit of good works. Our works and our lives will glorify God in Christ. When we walk with Christ in faith, and when we do our works trusting in Him, it is as if we are wearing clothes that magnify the glory of God. And the way we live, the works we do, will look different than the way the world lives. I'll contrast that to the Laodiceans. The Laodiceans were working with this attitude of self-sufficiency. They pursued their works in a worldly manner. They were not working to glorify God, but to satisfy their own selfish purposes. So instead of looking more like Christ and being clothed with His righteousness, the Laodiceans were 
starting to look more and more like the world around them. So let's ask ourselves, what kind of works are we clothed in? Are they the works of the world? Are they the works of Christ? Finally, Jesus offers salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. As we've seen already, the later scenes were so far from Christ that they could not even see their own spiritual condition. Without Christ, we can neither see ourselves nor the world rightly. And we live in confused and confusing times. We live in times when a man can call himself a woman and we're all expected to go along with it. And it has come to the point that uh, even Christians are starting to be unsure about these things. We don't, we don't know what to think about it. We don't know what to do about it. Well, if we want to see the world rightly, if we want to stand on a firm foundation, then we need to be in fellowship with Jesus. We need to know Him. He is the standard. And it is only through knowing Christ that we can also know ourselves and our world rightly. Why is it that so many Christians are dissatisfied and discontent? Why is it that so many Christians live lives that look no different than the world? Why is it that so many Christians are confused and unsure about what the Bible teaches? Well, the answer is that many Christians, and yes, even many churches, are far from Christ. We are out of fellowship with Him. And like the Laodiceans, we need gold as only Christ can give. We need to be clothed with his righteousness and walk in his works. We need our spiritual eyes to be opened, to have true sight. And really, we can sum these three things up into one thing that is needed. What the Laodiceans need is to return to Jesus. Now, these are hard words from Jesus. But the reason he speaks these things to the church is because of his love. Look at what verse 19 says. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. You know, we sometimes think of confession and repentance as tedious things. Uh, we balk at the idea of humbling ourselves, of going up to someone and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Or maybe we're afraid that if we really admitted what we did or said or thought, then no one would want to be friends with us. But that is not the case with Christ. With Christ, we don't need to be afraid of repentance. Instead, Jesus says here that we should even be zealous for it. When we find ourselves out of fellowship with him, we should be quick to seek his forgiveness. We should be eager for it. We can do this because Jesus loves those whom he disciplines. Right? Notice Jesus does not say, he does not say, be zealous and repent, and then I will love you. No, it's the other way around. Because I love you, he says. Because I love you, therefore be zealous and repent foundation of Christ's discipline of the church is his love for the church. And the aim 
The purpose of discipline is not punishment, but the restoration of fellowship. It's like the parable of the prodigal son. When we repent, when we come running back to him, we can know that Jesus will not turn us away in disgust. Instead, we can have confidence that he will welcome us with open arms. And that is his promise. In fact, that's what we see in the very next verse, in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. See, picture this Laodicean church there. They're far from Christ. And they got this attitude of self-sufficiency and they, they're all gathered together in their church and the door is closed. But what does Jesus say? He is at the door. He is knocking. He's ready to come and eat with them. And there's no better picture of fellowship than this image of eating together. And I think that's one of the reasons why that Jesus gives us the practice of communion as part of our worship of him. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're not only remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus from a distance. In addition to that, we are also participating in fellowshipping with him. We're eating with him, not, you know, in a merely physical way, but we are participating by faith, trusting that Jesus really brings us into a genuine relationship with himself. Each time we celebrate communion, we are reminded that Jesus is our greatest treasure, that Jesus clothes us with his righteousness and gives us good works to walk in, and that Jesus enables us to see and judge things rightly. Jesus began this message by saying he was almost ready to spit out the Laodiceans. But look where he ends. He ends by saying that he is ready to feast with anyone who hears his voice and opens the door to him. These are not the words of someone who is holding us at arm's length, waiting for us to prove ourselves. These are the words of a Savior who is eager to be with his people. Jesus demonstrates his love for a strange church by calling them back into fellowship with him. Verse 21, Jesus concludes with a promise. The one who conquers, I will give to him to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And this theme of overcoming or conquering has been in each of the seven letters. If you remember, if you go back and look at each of the seven letters, you'll see that Jesus always prefaces his promise with, um, say, by saying, to the one who conquers. Okay? So this is a theme that's been throughout all the letters. And it really gets re-emphasized here in this last promise. Those who are in fellowship with Christ share in Christ's victory. Of course, we know that when Christ returns, all his enemies will be subdued and death will be no more. We look forward to that day when Jesus will fully reign supreme over all things. That is our great hope. But let's not miss that this victory of Jesus is also something that's being worked out progressively in history as hearts and minds are transformed through the power of the gospel. And as we trust in Jesus and walk with him 
He gives us victory over sin and unbelief. And what is more, Jesus also overcomes the world. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 5. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This brings us back to the problem of the Laodicean church. Instead of overcoming the world by trusting in Christ, instead of overcoming the world with Christ, the Laodicean church was being overcome by the world around them. They were increasingly adopting an attitude of self-sufficiency, thinking that they did not need Christ. They were growing comfortable with their cultural surroundings. And this is why Jesus warned them that he was ready to spit them out. And perhaps, too, this is why the church, in so many ways, may seem so powerless today. Instead of pointing the world to Christ, Christians are often tempted to follow the world wherever it leads. Instead of standing firm on what God's word says, we shrink back because we are afraid that the world will overcome us. Well, this message in Revelation was a wake-up call to the church in Laodicea. Perhaps it, it is a message that we need to hear as well. At the same time, this message is also an invitation to come back into fellowship. Remember, these are the words of a Savior who loves his people. Jesus is knocking at the door of the church, ready to fellowship with anyone who hears his voice and opens him. So let's ask ourselves, are we in fellowship with Christ? Do we value him as our greatest treasure? Are we walking in the works that he has given us to do? Are we seeing all things through him? Or are we lacking in some of these areas? Are we deficient are we spiritually poor and not even able to see it? Well, the good news is that Jesus is generous. He's more precious than fine gold. He clothes the naked and he opens the eyes of the blind. He's at the door and ready to feast with his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out to find the one lost sheep. We thank you that he speaks correcting words to us, that he loves us and therefore calls us to repentance. So help us to treasure Jesus as our highest good. Clothe us, clothe us with his righteousness so that we may glorify you. And give us eyes to behold his goodness, his majesty, his beauty. We ask this in his name. Amen.